and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, Building and Landscapes Curator for the National Trust. And today I'm in Suffolk in the east of England to learn more about a discovery found under layers of acidic, sandy soil. Some 1,400 years ago, a community came together to haul a ship from a river within which they were to bury their king. And today we're going to reimagine what that final journey was really like. Now I've arrived at a boatyard in Woodbridge and I can see across the river the wooded banks beyond which are Sutton Hoo, where in 1939 a local archaeologist called Basil Brown uncovered the ghostly shape of an 86-foot oak ship that had been buried there. Now inside the ship was a carefully curated burial chamber for a well-respected king, King Radvald, of the Woofing dynasty. But why did they bury the ship and how did it get there? If I turn around... I can now see some large buildings that look like a cross between an airplane hangar and a warehouse. And inside one of those buildings, there's a full-size replica being built plank by plank. And that's going to help us answer some of these questions. Hi, are you James? How do you do? Yeah, I'm Jack Barnard. I'm the project manager from the Sutton Hoo Ships Company. Shall we go and have a look inside? Yes, please. That is an end. Enormous boat. I had no idea how huge it is. We're looking at the side of this vessel, and you've got the oak keel that runs the full length, but the principal shape is given by a superstructure, which really defines the shape of this long, lean, sleek, pointed at both ends. Huge boat. Yeah. I mean, I could park four family cars along the keel, nose to tail, and still have room for a couple of minis at either end. Well, I could take you up to one of our end platforms and we can have a look at could it from we? above. Right, we're just climbing up to an elevated platform that I guess is about 10 feet above the ground and we're not even as high as the prow of this ship. When you see it elevated and being built in this kind of magnitude, it is just breathtaking. Our principle here is if we don't know what the Anglo-Saxons done, we will always go back in time rather than forward. So the saw, which we knew the Romans used, was, wasn't used by the Anglo-Saxons. So as much as possible, we are using their methods and their tools to try and understand exactly how they built this ship 1,400 years ago. So whereabouts have you got to in the process of, of rebuilding this boat? Our plan is that we get two planks on a week. We're on track. So by the end of this year, we hope to have the whole hull planked so it would look like a ship, but it won't have any inside. So the following year will all be about making sure that the frames are in place, that we've worked out how the flooring will be fitted, um, how the seating will be put in. Very sort of dominant and striking feature about the design is this regular punctuation along the length of the vessel of these metal rivets. You know, if, if it weren't for these rivets, we wouldn't be building this ship because when they excavated the site up at Sutton Hoo, it was the rivets that remained in the sand in the ground in the right places which allowed us to convert that archaeological information into a modern-day plan. Because there was something particular about the geology of the site that caused the wood to decay and disappear, but the metal to re remain. That's spot on. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of these metal I can tell you rivets. there are 3,598 of those <laughs> in there. Wow. So that's, that's an awful lot of hammering required. 
The enthusiasm and vigour is to be seen everywhere. You've got a few more years of work to do, and then what happens? Spring 2025 is when we hope to get it on the water, and then we're going to incrementally trial it. But one of the reasons we're building this is to find out what it was capable of and what it may have been used for and why it might have been used as a burial ship. Why was it held in such high esteem? Because to this day, we don't know whether it was a cargo ship, a, a cruising ship or a warship, you know, but we can hopefully at least rule some of those things out because if it doesn't perform like a warship, then it wasn't used as a warship. So they're the kind of things that we're going to be looking at to try and help the historians answer some of those age-old questions that have always been around. Well, this is an enormous enterprise. The ship, really, is just the beginning, isn't it? So what we've got out there is the beautiful River Deben, which mm. must have been the playground of this original ship. So don't you think it would be a good idea if we went out onto the river ourselves and, and had a bit of a look and to see what, what journey may have happened? Absolutely stunning. OK, let's go. James, this is Brian, he's our skipper for the day. How do you do, Brian? Hello, James, pleased to meet you. Sorry about the weather today. I hope you don't <laughs> mind, I've brought somebody else along who, who I think will be able to help you reimagine the journey. Hello, I'm Matt. I have to say, you are a formidable-looking figure. You're wearing a warm, pinky-red woolen cloak and a tunic and a fabulous hat. I'm wearing it because I'm a member of Wolfednas, which is a living history organisation that concentrates on recreating the material culture of the people of that time. This is the sort of thing that somebody of reasonably high status would be wearing in the early 7th century, the time of King Radwald and the, the Sutton Who ship burial. It's very striking. I wonder if you've got any gear for me. Can't it be going out <laughs> onto the water just in, in 21st century clothes? So to start Wonderful. with, we're going to give you a woolen tunic and then we'll put one of these wraparound coats over the top of that and then a cloak over the top of that and we'll get you a hat as well. And you will be <laughs> ready for an adventure on the Deben. You are kind. I'm also carrying this rather large horn that you can see. The end is, is sawn off um, because it's a sounding horn rather than a drinking horn. Matt, I think we should sound that now to start our journey. I think they heard that. Now, Matt, we've left Bordsy Key behind in a very small, clinker-built wooden boat in the water that is timeless, the way the waves are breaking over the bow of this wooden vessel. The landscape that we see, the hills that we see in the distance as we move further up the river, is exactly the same landscape as we would have seen in the 6th and the 7th century. These are the sensations and the sights that somebody entering this river at that period would have felt. Actually, as I understand it, we're closer here to mainland Europe than I am to my home in Worcestershire. This must have been a, a meeting place of seafarers. Definitely. I think particularly once we start to see the development of kingdoms, of power centres, and that's something that the Deben is particularly important for. It's highways European for, for European trade, cross-channel trade, and trade from much further away as well, even as far as like the Byzantine Empire and then beyond into China. And it's also kind of a highway for people migrating into the country. Now, Matt, tell me, who was King Redwald? Redwald? He ruled East Anglia, but he held power over kings of other southern kingdoms as well, so kings of Essex, um, possibly Kent, Sussex, and possibly even Wessex as well. So he was 
very important thing. Brian, our captain, has turned the engine off. And we are mid-channel, silence, in this timeless wooden boat. What I'm fascinated about, Matt, is why will you choose to bury your king in a boat? It's making that really important, saying here is a powerful man, here he is, a true king amongst kings, and it's his family stamping their authority, saying this is how important we are. Not only was Radwell so rich and powerful, but he deserves to have all of these things buried with him, but we as his descendants are so rich and powerful that we can give them up to the ground to go with Radwell into, into whatever lies beyond. It's a formidable prospect. Jack, you're also a very experienced rower in your own right. We're sitting on a thwart, broadly speaking, which is a transverse bench on yes. which a rower would sit. And then there would be two oars people, would there, on either side on the same on the bench? Same. But remember that the ship is very wide. In the centre, it's 4.8 metres across. We'd be a long way from one another. But we would also be expected to row in unison because in order for 20 rowers on each side to move at the same time, they have all got to go in the water and come out of the water at the same point. If not, they'll start to clash with one another. Oh, come on, tell me, Matt, who were these Anglo-Saxon rowers? You can't just put anybody into any boat and expect them to be able to row efficiently, and even more so when it's like a royal vessel of the size that we're talking about. So the assumption has to be that these are, are men who are trained for rowing, retained as rowers. They probably had other duties as well. They may have been what we call yesith. They would be people who would own lands that were given to them by, by the king. They would perform military service for the king. Fascinating. We're drifting far up the motor. We're off. And the waves are breaking over the bow. We're going into the wind, and I guess there's a little bit of tide that is wanted to push us up to sea too. But picturing taking that vessel, rowing, would be very hard work. The estuary was really quite broad when we started, and it's narrowing down, and there ends Woodbridge, with a modern marina and some clearly more industrial buildings. And the land rises around us as well, as we've cruised up, it's been very sort of flat and level. And the, the bit that we're coming up to now is where we assumed that the ship itself would have been moored before it was then dragged out of the water and hauled the half mile up to the burial mounds at Sutton Hoo. It's been an encounter with history. We're slowing down now, so we must be getting pretty near our destination, Sutton Hoo. I've left Jack and Matt and have come to the bank beneath Sutton Hoo. There is a public footpath here along the bank and I can just see a very steep hill and some woodland to one side. I'm here to meet Laura, who's going to help me understand what happened once the ship got to this very point. I can see her. Laura. Hello, nice to meet I'm you. I'm very pleased to meet you. <laughs> I'm Laura and I'm the uh, Archaeology and Engagement Manager here at National Trust Sutton Hoo. Couldn't be more thrilled to be here. Yes. The rain has stopped. <laughs> yes, welcome to Sutton Hoo. Now look, I'm feeling a bit daunted. We've recreated this journey from the mouth of the River Deben to here. This is the beginning of the great hall of that ship. Yes. From here, 
Yes, Sutton Hoo is a, a place name in Old English, which is the, the language of the Anglo-Saxons. The Sutton bit means southern and Tun means place or settlement. And then a hoo is a raised area of land often overlooking water. And that's exactly describes where we are. And we're going to be heading up one of the hoos to where the Royal Burial Ground is situated. And in terms of this moment, the ship has been beached, I suppose, in this squashy mud out mm, here. Yes. So conceivably there would have been spectators on both sides of the river, there would have been other vessels perhaps Possibly, yes, river. yes, and it would have been, we think, over a course of several days, possible funeral feasts as well, the kind of the ceremony. This is, wasn't kind of a funerary practice that would have been afforded to everyone. There are only three Anglo-Saxon ship burials that we know of in the whole of England, and there are two here at Sutton Hoo and one nearby at Snape. You've then got an enormous problem. I mean, it's hard enough to launch a ship going with gravity, but to pull it out of the water across these sort of muddy surfaces up this bank, across this berm up here. It's something quite alien to us today, I guess, dragging a huge ship just by the means that they had. But various theories include a lot of manpower, first and foremost, (laughs) (laughs) and ropes, potentially these trees being used as rollers to get us up there, and potentially even livestock as well being used. But it would have been a phenomenal feat. So, Laura, we're out of the mud. We've got a bit of a journey to go now, haven't we? We do. So we don't know exactly the route that the ship would have taken, but we're going to do as close to what we think is kind of possible today. Underneath this grass is a very dry, sandy soil, and I can imagine that being quite a sort of slick surface over to which you could drag it quite readily. Yes, we have quite acidic soil here in Suffolk. The soil type means that there isn't a ship to see at Sutton Hoo today because over time water seeping in created an acid bath which then um, dissolved kind of all the organic materials such as the timber of the ship, the body that was placed in it and what was uncovered in 1939 by archaeologists such as Basil Brown and Charles Phillips was actually a fossil of a ship. Laura, we've emerged from some lovely woodland into a much more open landscape, but nevertheless the ground is rising. I guess we've got a f- 30 or 40 metres. We're nearly there, but we are <laughs> on the steepest kind of part of the incline now. Just imagining the people hauling the effort to get this ship up there. And meanwhile, people are preparing the actual kind of burial itself. We're slaves part of the picture. Quite possibly, yeah. The Anglo-Saxons did have slaves. We know slaves were part of their culture and also were slaves themselves as well. I tell you what, I was rather sorry when I had to take off my Anglo-Saxon clothes. It protected me very well in the boat, but I was very struck by the colour. They're vivid, vibrant colours. I mean, almost sort of 1970s, retro and groovy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of the time people refer to this period as the Dark Ages, but... It couldn't be further from the truth. It was a very vibrant time, and we know that they used natural dyes to create a rich rainbow of colour. And that is one of the things that we're thinking about, you know, in terms of the ship, the the level of Sutton Hoo craftsmanship, and thinking about other Anglo-Saxon stone sculptures that were painted. It could have been carved. It could have had decorative panels. The trees are thinning, and this path winding its way through them and we're beginning to get a glimpse of that soft pillow shape on the horizon. This is where we're going to put the ship that we've been dragging up the hill. 
this is mound one and then we'll set about furnishing the ship and the burial chamber ready to heap over the soil to create this beautiful mound. Now, Laura, which way was the ship facing? So it's this east-west orientation facing out to the river and that connection to the North Sea we think is just such an important part of the kind of burial layout. Take me through the, the, the process of burying a boat. What we're doing is kind of furnishing a burial chamber in the middle. The king would have been laid out in there. Some people think that he was buried in a tree trunk coffin. Other theories suggest that he was lying kind of supine on the, the base of the ship. And then it's the process of adding in the objects that not only represent him in life, but also would have had a purpose, a statement for him in death as well. 263 objects that were going to be used into the next life. So we've got a weaponry, the iconic Sutton Hoo helmet, a wonderful mastercrafted pattern welded sword. So that kind of regalia, that ceremonial aspect. We've got feasting equipment, entertainment in the form of a lyre and gaming pieces. So not simply a basic toolkit for the afterlife. Yes, many of these things might have been specifically made for burial. There were some things included for a practical purpose, but some things were very much for the state of power. The Anglo-Saxons at this time in East Anglia are predominantly pagan, but we are very much at that transition point. So we've got influences coming in from the East, Christianity coming through, through Kent and spreading. And we also have Christianity to the West, thinking about Ireland and um, Scotland as well. So what a remarkable discovery for the archaeologist Basil Brown in 1939. Staggering. We say that this is a discovery that changed history, that it truly revolutionised our understanding of who these people were, what they were capable of, the amazing craftsmanship. Everything found here at Sutton Hill is an expression of what it was to be an Anglo-Saxon and what they were capable of. Laura, what is intoxicatingly striking is the geometry of it that we've got this dark foreground and this, this hemisphere, like a rising planet of this, of this mound on the horizon set against this wonderful sky that you only get in this part of the world, I think. But why here at Sutton Hoo? Archaeology is a bit like having a jigsaw <laughs> yes. puzzle box. We've got some of the pieces, but we haven't got the picture on the back. So a lot of the time what we're doing is looking at the evidence that we have, seeing how it fits together and coming up with theories. There's still so much to learn about Sutton Hoo, so much research that we're still carrying out today to uncover other bits of the story. We think there are around 18 burial mounds here. 18? Yes. Some of them have been ploughed down to almost on the flat. So shall we go and explore some of the other people buried here? Yes, please. Laura, this feels like a, a great privilege to be going over the barrier. You've yes. got a little rope here. So I'll just unhook the rope and let you in. So Thank this is um, for our guided tours, so just kind of minimising uh, footfall and the erosion on the burial grounds. So Laura, that's one of the groups to our left. It is. Guided tour. And actually we're going to head over to Mound 17. And every step we take, a grasshopper leaps out in front of us. A carpet that's alive with wildlife. And Mound 17 looks in comparison to Mound 1, pretty modest. It's pretty flat. 
It is. So this was one of the very last things that was discovered during the 1980s campaign. And it was actually found purely by chance by Professor Martin Carver at the end of his excavation season, believe it or not, whilst he was playing golf. When we took over the site, we were conscious that the site had been raided on a previous occasion. So we put the site under 24-hour guard. I did my stint. I was a lone guard, surrounded by a lot of mounds. And being a, a golfer, a not a very good one, but a, a, a keen golfer, so to say, I invented a game where you chip from mound one to mound two, from mound two to mound three, four, five, six, seven, and so on, thus um, helping me learn the geography of the site uh, and also try and uh, improve my chipping skills. There was a mound 12, which was just under a tree, and I always fell short. But interestingly enough, the ball always rolled off what it landed in, and eventually I twigged that there must have been another mound there. That's the only reason why the ball would have rolled off where there wasn't apparently a mound to roll off. And that turned out to be mound 17. You know, I wouldn't recommend it in general, <laughs> but it is amazing how... If you spend long enough peering at the ground, how you can start to feel the micro-geography, which is hiding what you're looking for. What was actually found here? So we've got two graves in front of us, and one possible theory is this is Radwald's son, and he was buried with everything that you would think of for a warrior. Moving over to the next grave, it's a horse. So his horse, we believe, to accompany him onto the next life. And over there, which is, again, no longer really visible as a mound, uh, Mound 14, it's the only high-status female burial that we found here. So that could have been Radwell's queen. Unfortunately, we'll never know for certain. So what you're saying was this was exclusively a family burial site? The royal burial ground is a really important part of our Sutton Hoo stories, but there are other chapters that are equally as interesting and fascinating. So during Professor Martin Carver's excavations, they also found 39 sand bodies. Again, the acidity of the soil means they were shadowed kind of stains in the soil. And quite an interesting juxtaposition to the 7th century burials that had so much care and um, reverence afforded to them. These people were deviant burials, we think, with kind of wrists and ankles being bound, heads cut off, shallow graves, very gruesome. And I think it just shows there's so much that we still don't know about Sutton Hoo and ongoing research. So today we're using a lot of uh, non-invasive techniques and technology to see what that can tell us and add further chapters to our Sutton Hoo story. The story's not over. It's been fascinating. Laura, thank you very thank much you. indeed. Standing here in the courtyard, looking at the full-size sculpture of the great ship they have here, it's inspiring to think of what the Anglo-Saxons achieved at Sutton Hoo. It really shows the commitment and the ceremony and the importance in preparing their dead for the afterlife. And the sheer feat of strength and engineering to enable that to happen is incredibly impressive. Once the full-size replica ship is built and river-worthy, we'll gain even more insight into this magnificent vessel and those she carried. 
And that's what I love about it. It's a story that is still being written, a story still being spun. listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Sutton Hoo or the building of the Great Ship Replica, we've included information and links in this episode's show notes. To make sure you get to new episodes of this podcast, follow or subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. We'll be back soon, but for now, from me, James Grasby, goodbye. Goodbye.